almost exactly nine years ago, in June of 2006, we began a seven-month series of 30 sermons in 2 Samuel. I can tell not one person in here remembers that. I cannot, for the life of me, remember exactly why I wanted to go through 2 Samuel before 1 Samuel. You see, 1 and 2 Samuel was originally one book. So what we did then was essentially start in the middle of a book. And the more I think back on it now, maybe it was because of a special interest in the life of David who is the main character of 2 Samuel especially. But 2 Samuel picks up where 1 Samuel ends, of course, and 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul. And most of you know that that means much of David's early life, including the conflict with Saul, is dealt with in 1 Samuel. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here. What is 1 Samuel all about, and why is it so important for us to understand? Well, a little historical review, and I mean really little. After God delivered his people out of Egypt through Moses, and they finally entered and conquered much of the promised land under Joshua, they began a very long period of forsaking the Lord after Joshua died. In the book of Judges, we see a repeating pattern. First, the people would forsake the Lord. Second, God would punish them by raising up a foreign power to oppress them. And third, then the people would cry out to God for deliverance. And fourth, God would raise up a deliverer for them who was a leader known as a judge. And some of those people were really characters. The book of 1 Samuel picks up right at the end of Judges. And those times were faithless times for the people of God. Do you see the oxymoronic nature of that statement? The people were of God were faithless. The priesthood was corrupt. The ark wasn't even in the tabernacle. It had been captured and hauled off by the Philistines. There was widespread, rampant idolatry. One verse at the very end of the book of Judges summarizes these times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of Israel had lost their way. Why had they lost their way? It's really simple. In the first part of Judges, in chapter 2, verse 10, we read, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. 
we, as American citizens, have enjoyed abundant, gracious blessings from God for over 200 years. So much blood has been spilt to preserve what had been won. Yet we are now faced with the Supreme Court, one of the three foundational branches of our federal government, legalizing a set of values that are directly opposed to the clear values of God as stated in his word. What is now the law of the land in every state in the union is now law that God himself condemns. This means that as believers in Jesus Christ, we must not and cannot just say, well, it's the law now. And yet, already many professing Christians are silent and have been for quite a while. And the silence is deafening. Some of that is the sadness that's involved, that knowing that something precious has died. That is true, probably, probably in many, many hearts, probably most of your hearts. But we cannot stay there. The book we are about to begin in the Old Testament is set in a time of unfaithfulness to God. The people had lost their way because they did not really know the Lord. The descriptions that we see in Scripture of the state of affairs of people rebelling against their Creator is eerily similar to what we face now here in our country in, the, in ways that we have never really had to face before. Yes, we know that this isn't the first Supreme Court decision that has run counter to God's word. There's a pretty good list of awful decisions. But this one packs a punch simply because it endorses something that most people never thought could possibly be endorsed across the board as law. This action now opens a legal Pandora's box for the not-so-virtuous majority of American people to give the okay to even more serious and widespread evil. Paul warned the Romans and us in Romans chapter 1 of a downward spiral of enslaving sin that are actually evidences that God is judging the ungodliness and unrighteousness of us already. These are not things to come. These are evidences of God's judgment already 
stepping up. This is evidence of God's wrath on people, and it's described in three specific actions of God in Romans 1. We need to become very familiar with this setting, which we're going to do this morning at least in part. These actions of God are actually three steps where he actually gives people over to sin. In other words, God's wrath upon sin is seen when he lets people sin any way that they desire to. He lets people get what they want, do what they want. And even though everyone knows there is a God, which Romans 1 says, specifically starting in verse 18, if you want to follow along here, and his invisible attributes of eternal power and divine nature also are known by everyone, whether they admit it or not. In fact, Romans 1, 18 through 20 says that those things are plain to them. Do we believe What God says is true about the hearts of everyone. Paul even explains right here what people do with that. People suppress this truth about who God is and what he has done. And deny his existence even as the creation screams out clearly at them just from its very existence and magnificent design that they're wrong. So they do not honor God, the text says, and they do not give thanks to him, becoming futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts darkened, Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for anything and everything that can take God's place. Romans 1, 21 through 23. Now up to here, Paul is describing what brings people to these three giving overs of God to sin, which are evidences of his judgment upon us as a people, a land, a nation. What brings people to this point? The suppression of the truth so they don't honor God and don't give thanks to him. That's the basic foundation. When nations, societies, cultures get to this state of denial, thinking that God has no claim on them, then we see Three actions of God giving people over to their sin. Each giving over leading to a worse condition. Romans 1, 24 through 25, we read the first giving over. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is nothing less than sexual immorality 
which eventually gives way to the second giving over. Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We as a people have now gone past this. We're past it. Because the USA's legal endorsement of homosexual immorality just made legal what most are ready to agree with. This means the dam has been broken, and now we will see more and more of the last evidence, which is very interesting. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, you see how this goes on? Not acknowledging God, not honoring Him, not giving thanks at any point in this downward spiral. So God gives them over to something even worse. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with, this is key, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a list. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Don't forget that. They know. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Debased here, this word can also be translated as depraved, or an older word is reprobate. A debased, depraved, reprobate mind is evident when so many at every level of leadership in the Supreme Court, the presidency, the cabinet, the legislature, the press, religious organizations, and culture give approval to those who practice what ought not to be done. Verses 28 and 32. And also do those things themselves without fear of punishment. This is where we are now. So, to live faithfully in these times, those who are genuine Christians must keep several important things in mind. Yesterday was a very interesting day. 
I don't know if your email inbox was like mine, but I got all sorts of stuff, some great stuff from our denomination, from religious organizations that we uh, respect. One seminary president wrote a letter to his guys. And he made several points that I want to share here this morning because this covers the basis. On all these emails were were pretty pretty were pretty similar in nature. <clears throat> which I thought was God's grace and power at work because the call for us is the same. First, no human court has the authority to redefine marriage. And the verdict Friday does not change the God-ordained reality of marriage. We need to start right there. Do you agree? There is a higher authority. Nothing will prevail against God. Proverbs 21:30 says, "No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord." And nothing will thwart the advance of his kingdom. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So first, no human court has the authority to redefine marriage. Second, the word of God has pronounced judgment on any nation that would reclassify evil as good, darkness as light, and bitter as sweet. Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. As a nation, America continues to go down this path, and it should break our hearts, because the path we're going down puts us in the crosshairs of judgment. Already has. And it will continue. Christians are responsible for never compromising on these issues. In every way, we must stand firm. No human court has the authority to redefine marriage, and the verdict Friday does not change the God-ordained reality of what marriage is. We... Uh, went over before, I don't it's a month or so ago, um, how you know when a moral revolution has happened. 
Let me remind you what that was. Al Mohler found this somewhere, but you know he reads more books in one week than most of us read our whole lives, so his sources are good. A moral revolution has happened when what was condemned is now celebrated. The White House in rainbow colors? A moral revolution has happened when what was celebrated is now condemned. Not only what, but those who now cannot celebrate are condemned and will be condemned. Look around. If you know the Lord and you want to stand with him, this means you. It means your family. It means your children. It means us as a group. Third, this ruling proves that we are clearly in the minority and a people set apart, and this bothers us. This is why we need to know history, because we have never been in the majority. And when we have, it's been exception. Beloved, Peter writes, I urge you as what? The majority? I urge you as sojourners and exiles, or exiles and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The standards that shaped Western culture and American society have now given way to practical atheism and moral relativism. It's all over the map. Everyone does what they think is right. We can put according to their heart. Because people in our culture think that following their heart is the highest end. And we know that our hearts are desperately wicked. A country will not rise above the morality of its citizens. And the majority of Americans do do not have a biblical worldview. It is not there anymore. Uh, When I taught government to high school seniors decades ago, one of the things that really uh, was a surprise to many students when you actually made them read papers from the founding fathers and all the debates that went on and the issues um, that had to be worked out. Incredible mountain of, of fabulous work. James Madison especially emphasized that a republic, and remember this was a new experiment, a republic cannot stand 
And they said this over and over and over. We're not a virtuous people. And they used that word strongly. Virtue was not somebody's own personal idea of what it meant to live. Virtuous meant not just moral, but moral because of a bigger reason that we are under the ultimate authority of God. There is a higher authority. So first, no human court has the authority to redefine marriage. Second thing we need to remember is that the word of God has pronounced judgment on any nation that will reclassify evil as good and good as evil. And third, this ruler, this ruling proves that we're clearly in the minority and a people set apart. The question as we, as we think about this third one is, can we deal with that? If we haven't dealt with that already, it's going to become absolutely necessary to think through what that means individually and for your family and us as a body of Christ, even more as the days go by. Fourth, and uh, James has already preached this before the song, taught us this before the song. Religious liberty is not promised in the Bible. In America, the Church of Jesus Christ has enjoyed unprecedented freedom. This is changing. And the new normal, my wife's favorite phrase, the new normal may include persecution that is new to us. You know where the biggest fight's going to be first? Money, tax exempt status, no, no little perks for giving to a church or to a charitable organization. That's where we're going to see the loudest noise because money's involved. But that's not really the most important issue at all. But that'll be one of the first. And who knows, because we're in that third giving over to a debased mind, where the organized debased minds together are going to hit. Slander will be another big one against Jesus and anybody who claims that they love Jesus and yet will call sin, sin. and preach the gospel to people who desperately need it. There has never been a more important time also for gifted men to help lead the church by capably handling the sword of the Spirit. I don't know if you guys have realized it, but the elders have talked about this a lot the last several years. We see God raising up this huge contingent of young men who have been called to the ministry. 
I don't, it's unprecedented in my lifetime. And right now, they don't have any place to go. Many of them are just stuck looking for a flock. And I'm sitting here looking at this going, boy, has God prepared us. Because he's not going to yank us out of this. We will be going through it. And God is already raising up. Just start naming the names of people you know of who have been in this pulpit. Who are in our congregation at school somewhere on a beach. Either coast. God is working to provide for us. There's so many faithful young men going into the pastorate right now. Do y'all realize that in the ARF Ministerial Alliance, I am the geezer now? The other wise older guys have retired. And the young men that were part of their ministries already have now stepped into the pulpit as senior pastors. There, There is nothing more exciting than to see this happening right before our eyes. Fifth, marriage is not the ultimate battleground. And we've got to understand this. Our enemies are not the men and women who we see trying to destroy it. The battleground is the gospel. Be careful not to replace the patience and the love and the prayer that God has put in your hearts as you've grown in Christ with bitterness and hatred and politics. That will not cut it. And it will just be a bad reputation and give people more and more of an excuse to do whatever to God's people. As we carefully, I listen to this, carefully navigate around all the dangerous pitfalls that are coming that we don't see, or maybe we see some of them, but we're still trying to figure out what to do about it, let's be reminded of the indomitable power of forgiveness through the cross of Christ. And it was no accident that God put this on major news networks all last week. We saw a church of people look people in the eye, look that guy in the eye who killed their family members and their friends in a Bible study, and they said, We forgive you, and they didn't stop there. The news didn't record it all, but it didn't stop there. Because Christ has forgiven me. How can I not forgive you? That's the message. But you notice they still proclaimed Christ's name and his work as a part of that message. It wasn't this blah, blah, blah kind of ooey-gooey, yeah, we love everybody and we forgive them. It was specific. And that happened, and then this happened, and they were in the same week. God did that, had that ordained on purpose so that we could see the incredible difference and we could also see 
politicians trying to mess up both, and they did. But we should have eyes to see fellow brothers and sisters of Christ. That was absolutely amazing. The sixth thing is we've already mentioned how Romans 1 verses 18 through 32 identifies the evidence for the wrath of God on a nation. Sexual immorality followed by homosexual immorality culminating in a debased or reprobate mind. That's the downward spiral. Number seven, the last one here, if our diagnosis is in line with Romans 1 of God's wrath being displayed in this downward spiral kind of way, then we must also follow the prescription that Paul gives earlier in the same chapter. And what was it? We are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Homosexuals, like all other sinners, need to be warned of impending eternal judgment and lovingly offered the forgiveness, grace, and new life through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is where we must stand. That must be our mindset. As we have discussions, as family members go crazy when we actually say no, God says This is wrong. We must know how to answer. In other words, we may have more opportunities to clearly share the gospel of Jesus Christ in specific terms in the coming days than we've had in the whole rest of our lifetime. And you know what? It won't be just throwing a little booklet at somebody and saying reading and then hoping they say a prayer. It's going to be interactions that tear our hearts apart. But our hope has got to be that God really did what he said he did, that Jesus really did come to die for our people. And he really did pay for our sin. All people sin. What a message. Cry out to the Lord for him to change hearts as he gives us opportunities that we will not be able to run away from. It will be amazing the stories that we'll start telling each other. I was stuck somewhere and this person came in and you end up sharing the gospel with them or somebody's family member who you haven't talked to and they always get upset at dinner table time and blah, blah. We will just be amazed at the opportunities to actually share the gospel. And some of it may be fearful for us at, at times because there's going to be a cost involved. You may be excluded from this group of friends. 
You may not be able to go somewhere with this person. You may stand up and want to share the gospel with somebody that somebody else has already put on their blacklist, and they won't be with you because you shared the love of Christ and his blood on the cross and forgiveness with them. That's already happening. It's been happening for a long time. In other words, we're going to have to trust what God's doing in each of us as he works in us to make him more like himself as we proclaim the gospel. We're going to, we need to know the stories and the details so we can encourage each other and pray more than we ever have, which is why we started the Wednesday night prayer things and why God brought Al Baker here to help us see how desperately we do need to cry out to God because it's only him. It's only God who can change hearts. And we must recognize the need and cry out to him together to do that. So in the final analysis, how would you sum all this up? We must encourage one another. We must show patience and steady confidence in the sovereignty of God. And you talk about your theology making a difference, this is where it'll make the difference. In the sovereignty of God, he is not asleep at the wheel. He is ruling even now. He will use this dark time to bring people he has chosen before the foundation of the world to himself by faith in his son. And he will use us as the messengers. And some of us may be in the midst of persecution when we give the message. We must show patience and steady confidence in the sovereignty of God, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm doing this because He is my Lord, not when they disagree, we go with God. And the authority of Scripture. Now, I don't know about you, but that's quite a foundation. No, I do know about you. I'm counting on y'all. When we're walking down this path together and we turn around and go, where is so-and-so? You better be there. You better be there. So as we begin this Old Testament book that some people would think has nothing to do at all with what we're doing today, what's going on with us today, we've got to realize that most of the time down through history, those who know the Lord and seek to be faithful to him have usually been in the minority and have incurred the wrath and the prejudice of the world that they lived in. Jesus warned his disciples about this over and over again. And you know what we said? Nah, we live in America. If we do realize this, then we begin to see Scripture. I like to think of it as seeing Scripture in more of a dynamic 3D kind of way. The dimensions and the connections, it's deeper. You can see it better. 
instead of just this flat surface and, oh, we read this, we do this, it'll be okay. That's, that's not how it works anyway. And I urge you to take the time this week to just read through the whole book of 1 Samuel and do it in one sitting if you can. If you lack motivation, come Wednesday night and watch the documentary on Martin Lloyd-Jones and you will go home that night, no matter how tired you are, and you will read through a book of the Bible because his life is so encouraging. As someone who modeled this kind of standing for God, But when you read it through like that, which I have a hard time doing, do you? Because I want to go, ooh, that's, and I want to start doing my drawing thing and making connection, and what about this, and chase this down. And I've got to make myself, literally make myself, just read it. And then you'll be ready. Because this is an action-packed 31 chapters and there are some really colorful, colorful characters in this book. And some of their lives, some, will really encourage you to hope only in the Lord and be faithful only to Him, no matter what. And the others will scare you to death where you do not want to go down that road. <laughs> Who are the three main characters in First Samuel? Samuel, his whole life is there. Saul, his life ends in chapter 31. David is introduced. But you've got all sorts of other characters. We start off in chapter 1 with one of the, one of the greatest female women of faith in the whole Bible. Hannah. We've also got Jonathan. The list is long. But what's incredible is what their lives pointed to, who their lives pointed to. Dale Ralph Davis writes that what 1 Samuel is really all about is a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. I am a part of God's covenant people, and so are you, and I want to know a whole lot more about how God preserves his covenant people. We know a lot, or some, we need to know more. And this is the perspective we we must have as we begin this journey together. Would you bow with me for a prayer? Oh God, our God, Lord Almighty, we thank you that you allow us to worship together as was expressed this morning. We pray that that will continue to be true. We agree as we sang the song with part of the chorus saying, My stronghold, my Savior, I shall not be afraid at all. 
my stronghold, my Savior. I shall not be afraid at all. Only in God is my soul at rest. In Him comes my salvation. May we sing that with our hearts and our lives and our voices as we walk forward. It's in your name we pray. It's in Christ Jesus through whom we pray. We trust you. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? This is from Ephesians. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. You're dismissed.